You are listening to the podcast from Mosaic Church. Stay tuned after it for more info about how to get and stay connected with our church family. Now, let's dive into this week's message. Our scripture reading today is from Luke 16. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. The time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in this fire. But Abraham replied, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things while Lazarus received bad things. But now he's comforted here and you are in agony. And besides all this, Between us and you, a great chasm has been set in place so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. He answered, Then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my family, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. Abraham replied, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. He said to him, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be conceived, convinced even if someone raises from the dead. Amen. 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 All right. Thank you, Janu. And thank you, Jesus, for teaching us that the rich married people go to hell and that the poor single people go to heaven because that's what this is about, right? Welcome to Lost and Found. Week three, well, we're looking at all the ways that we get lost and the ways that Jesus finds us. And by the way, you do know we have two other services here uh, at Mosaic as well, just as a reminder. <laughs> hey, I've got a friend, we'll call him Brian. Uh, Brian, on the surface, for many years, was the classic American success story. Uh, super handsome, uh, great career trajectory, lots of opportunity, wonderful friends, beautiful wife, beautiful kids, but Brian had a pretty dark secret. He had been abusing alcohol secretly and seriously for a number of years. And at first, of course, like addicts do, he pretended it wasn't a big deal. He swore there was nothing to see here, that he could handle it until one night on the way home from work, he almost died driving yet again. And at that point, his wonderful, brave wife confronted him and said he was either going to be the booze, or it was going to be her and the kids. And thankfully, he chose 
wisely and began to go to Alcoholics Anonymous, AA. And I was privileged to go to a number of meetings with him, a handful of those, privileged to be there when he got his chip to be able to acknowledge a number of days of sobriety. And I was also privileged to learn a few things about the program along the way. And you may know that, common to a lot of 12-step programs, there are also 12 in AA. But I've heard one pe- uh, people talk about one step the most, and the one step that stood out to me the most, the one step that's helped people I think the most, the one step that helped my friend Brian the most, was the fourth step, which says this. We made a searching and fearless moral inventory of our lives. We made a searching and fearless moral inventory of our lives. So addicts, must do this to break through. They got to look in the mirror. They got to search the corners of their hearts and not come out until they have fearlessly answered the question, who am I? Who am I? Why is this? Well, as uh, my friend said, when he was asked, when Brian was asked how things could get so bad for him, he said this, I had to answer that question because I got lost. I got lost. Well, lost from what? Well, I'd say he got lost from himself. He got lost from himself because, as we're going to see today, people aren't just lost from God. People are also lost from themselves. They're not just lost from God. They're lost from themselves. And so my goal is to help us today arrive at the same place as my friend through a similar kind of process. I'm going to ask us all, and it might get a little tense for a few minutes today, ask us all to look in the mirror to go and search the corners of our hearts. I'm gonna try to not let us out until we can each fearlessly answer that question, who am I? Who am I? Who are you? Who am I? What can help us answer that question? Jesus, the master storyteller, can. He shows us here in Luke chapter 16 where we meet two types of people. Let's take a look and meet them today. Man number one, verse 19, Jesus says, there was a rich man, who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day at his gate. So here we meet the first man. He's the first century equivalent of the 1%. Notice how he's dressed. He's dressed in purple. Purple was the priciest color you could wear because of the expensive manufacturing process. He's wearing Jewish couture, basically. But he doesn't only have on purple, it takes pains to point out the kinds of underwear he's wearing. He says underneath he has fine linen. We're being shown this man spends more on his underwear than most of us do on our entire wardrobe. And he lived in luxury, it says, Every day, commentators say this basically means he likely dined daily on meat, which was a a near impossibility in an agrarian-based society. In other words, he had the fattened calf for breakfast, fattened calf for lunch, fattened calf for dinner and dessert every day. And he has such wealth that his property is surrounded by a gate, also a rarity. And what, by the way, what was his name again? Oh, wait, We're not told. Maybe we'll be told later. Actually, we won't. We won't. Because this man is only ever identified by his clothes, his lifestyle, his neighborhood. He is only ever known as rich man. His true self has gotten lost in his labels. Second man, at his gate, the rich man's gate, was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. Now Lazarus here, instead of being covered in purple, we're shown he's covered 
in red because of the blood running from his sores. Instead of feasting, he's starving. Historians say that the first century uber-rich would sometimes, they would wash their hands before eating, then dry them on slices of bread. Then throw them away just to show how much excess that they had. See, Lazarus laid longing by this man's gate, waiting for some soiled bread bits. And instead of having a gate that kept predators out, instead he's now abused by dogs. These, these aren't pet poodles or, you know, chippy chihuahuas there to comfort him. It's not the point of this picture. These mongrels are here to torment him. Two different stations in life, but the same fate befell both. Each of them died. The time came. When the beggar died and the angels carried him to the rich man's side, to the Abraham side, the rich man also died and was buried. So Lazarus here, he's not buried. That would have been, been considered as being cursed by God. But the rich man is still honored by having a public burial. However, in this sentence, we begin to get a clue to the dramatic reversal awaiting each. Because while Lazarus was carried... The rich man was only buried. And he wakes up to a new reality. It says, in Hades, where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So immediately, from one breath to the next, their positions are reversed. The rich man is in hell. The poor man's in paradise with Abraham. Now, the point of pointing out Abraham here is that Abraham was the person in Jewish tradition who was considered to be the one receiving souls bound for heaven, sort of like Christians have done with Peter and the pearly gates. Get the picture, okay? So Abraham received Lazarus, but hell received the rich man. And before we go any further, three things should be noted. Let's look at them. First thing that needs to be noted is about Jesus and his popularity in modern polls. Okay, here's what I mean. People say, I love Jesus, but not the church, right? And to a certain point, I feel you. I feel the same way too sometimes, just gonna let you know. None of you here, it was the first service, okay. I get that. People are messy. Jesus is not. He is perfect. And none of that is going to change. But if that is you, if you say, I love Jesus and what he teaches, uh, you should know that Jesus is the one who teaches about eternal judgment more than anyone else in all of the Bible and the Christian scriptures. If he loved you over there with that bit, he loves you right here too. Because you do know that John 3, 16, Jesus is still Jesus when Jesus is Luke 16, 23, Jesus. Hmm? Second thing that needs to be said is about you and Mosaic Church today. If you're visiting for the first time, and here we are talking about hell, congratulations. You're like, God, I knew it. <laughs> if you invited a friend, you know, you're squirming in, in, in your seat. All right. Third thing that needs to be said and noted is that this is a parable. And the point of a parable is to teach certain truths, not necessarily certain facts. And while other scriptures do speak of hell as a fact, this one, maybe not so much. Why? Here's why. Jesus literally uses, our translation caught it, the word Hades here. That's the Greek version of the Hebrew word Sheol. Sheol was the place that Jews believed people went when they died to await the final judgment. Kind of like an in-between place. 
But by using this word, I want to tell you, Jesus is not necessarily affirming disbelief, but he is using the Jewish construction in the first century of the afterlife to make a point about the lostness of the human heart in this life. So let's go back to our text to see that point where, again, the rich man's in torment. Lazarus is in paradise. Rich man called to him, Father Abraham, verse 24, have pity on me. And send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I'm in agony in this fire. So let's look at this man here. What are his first words when he wakes up in torment? Does he apologize for his lifestyle? Repent for neglecting the poor at his gate? No. Does he even ask to be let out? No, this is why, and if your conception of God is one where you know people are trying to crawl out of hell and he just flicks them back in and kind of laughs, ha, 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 ha. That's not the case. This man never even asks to get out. No, instead he tries to cut a bar, like make a deal with Abraham to get Lazarus to be his water boy. Hey, send Lazarus so he can stick his finger in my mouth and help me feel better. He's blind to his surroundings, blind to how much trouble he's in, blind to how he comes across to others, and he's blind to the reason he is even there in the first place. What does it look like to be lost to the self? Blindness to self is evidence of lostness to self. Say it again. Blindness to self is evidence of lostness to self. The first marker of self-lostness is that we're unaware of how bad things have really gotten. We're unaware, like an addict, of the mess we're making in our lives. We're not only blind to the wake we leave, but we don't even want to turn our heads around to look at it. And isn't it true that many times, until the pain gets so bad, until we experience some kind of pain or torment, we'll never be woken up to how blind we really are. Mm. What is, I told you it was gonna get tense, what is Father Abraham's response? Verse 25, but Abraham replied, son, technon is a Greek word, child. Remember that in your lifetime, you received your good things while Lazarus received bad things, but now he's comforted and you're here in agony. Well, hang on. This is where it starts to get weird, as if it weren't already strange. What does Abraham say this man is condemned for? You'll notice the reason he gives for this man's presence here, Hades, is not for pursuing bad things. Wait, hang on. Not for human trafficking, warmongering, profiteering off other people's loss, money laundering, abusing people. No, but for, for pursuing, wait for it, good things. Wait. This is the Greek phrase, agathakai. It can be translated as something useful, pleasant, excellent, agreeable, upright, and honorable. Thank you, Strong's Concordance. We get the picture. Wait, this man was condemned in torment for receiving upright and good things in his life? Yes. Let me ask you now, by a show of hands, how many of you have ever received something upright, good, or nice in your life? Please show me your hand. All right. Some of you, you're still resisting me. It's okay. <laughs> you're like, I've received nothing good, especially not from this sermon. Okay. <laughs> I've received something nice, so I'll go first. Here's a little, little example. I once, back in the day, got a little award for being an all-city athlete in high school. Yay. Of course, there were only three schools in my city. <laughs> and when my teenage son found that out, he's never let me live it down since. He thought it was hilarious for dad to be all anything out of three. <laughs> so now, sometimes I'll come in the room, he'll go, hey, dad. I'll go, hey, what's up, buddy? He'll go, congrats. I'm like, for what? 
for being all city. <laughs> Just total teenage trolling. Morgan, are you saying hell is raising a teenager? No, I'm not saying that. I do actually love him for this. It endears him to me endlessly. And teens are a gift, by the way. Don't ever let anybody tell you different. What I am saying is that we've all likely received something good, honorable, upright, or excellent. So is Jesus saying we are condemned for those things. Maybe. Sometimes. Actually. Yes. Kind of. Why? Perhaps. You took, or you were forced to take, an intro to philosophy class. Often the idea of something called the sumum bonum will come up. Now, by the way, it's not the U2 singer's full name. Okay, sorry. But older people in first service got that joke. Fine. Okay, third service won't get it at all. All right. Sumum bonum means highest good. Uh, the highest good. And from Augustine to Kant, philosophers basically define this thing as the thing around which people build their lives. They propose every person has this and focuses the construction of their existence around it. Your sumum bonum is the answer to the question, who are you? What's the thing you really live for that gives you a sense of self, of who you are? What is your identity? Who are you? Your sumum bonum is the answer to that question. So let's ask, who are you? Hmm? Who are you? What's your identity? Are you tall, short, beautiful, popular? You're white. Are you black? You're brown. Are you an American? Are you Texan? I would say yes, thank you. Okay, all right. Are you gay? Are you straight? Is your sexuality your highest good? Who you really are? Who are you? By the way, the implication of this parable is that you should ask this question now before it's too late then. And because the rich man, because that's all he ever is, fails to ask himself this question in this lifetime, Abraham has to tell him in the next. Abraham says, the reason you're here is you're a person who got lost going after your good thing. The more this man pursued himself, the more he lost himself. Abraham says, you're like a person, you got everything you ever wanted. How's that working out for you? And if that was true then, it's no less true now, maybe even more so. Let me just give you quickly one example of how going after the self first causes you to lose yourself. This happens in our culture right now. Uh, philosopher Francis Fukuyama put it like this. He said, because we've largely moved God to the side in the 21st century Western culture that we live in, it's one now marked by, he says, a fight to the death for pure prestige. Enter stage left, social media, right? We are fighting, he says, and dying for this self to become famous. Let me give you some research about that. Huffington Post put it like this a few years ago. They said researchers from UCLA watched more television and tween shows, I love this, than anyone should be forced to watch. And found that as far back as 2007, the number one value being communicated through the stories was the desire to be famous. And that now, a decade later, not surprisingly, the number one goal of preteens is fame. He said, well, you know, stinks to be them. Thank goodness they're across the street right now. No, no, no. Is us. Look at this. A separate study conducted by Pew Research among 18 to 25 year olds. Researchers found that even getting rich is less important than becoming famous. You say, well, that was millennials. No, no, no. 
us too. Counselors, psychologists are warning more about the uptick in what they call adults who deal with depression and anxiety when they can't live up to their dream of fame. But let's pause here for a moment and ask, what if the collective dog actually caught the collective tail? What if we caught our tails? What if we got what we said we wanted? Pop culture writer, uh, her name is Cynthia Heimel. She covered celebrity news for a publication called The Village Voice for many years in New York, and she wrote an incredible article about it afterward, one of my all-time favorite quotes. She said she had known A-list star after A-list star. I can name them here. You'd all know them. Back when they were just struggling actors and actresses trying to pay the bills, trying to make it. And they said, she said, that they said like everybody else, if I could just make it, if I could just get that, you know, part in that film or that role on TV, then I'd be happy. But she said when they got what they wanted, when they got their good thing, she said something happened to many of them. Quote goes like this. She said, I pity celebrities. I do. Celebrities were once perfectly pleasant human beings, but now their wrath is awful. More than any of us, they wanted fame. They worked, they pushed. The morning after each of them became famous, they wanted to take an overdose because that giant thing they were striving for, that fame thing was gonna make everything okay. That was gonna make their lives bearable. That was gonna provide them with personal fulfillment and happiness. That thing had happened and nothing changed. They were still them. The disillusionment turned them howling and insufferable. She closed it like this. She said, I think when God wants to play a really rotten practical joke on you, he grants you your deepest wish. She's basically saying here that our getting our highest good apart from God might be the worst thing that can happen to us. What does it mean to be lost to yourself? Not just blindness to self, but living first for the self is evidence of being lost to the self. Come on, if we really took a searching and fearless moral inventory, we would know we should never live for ourselves first. Have you seen the squiggly stuff down there? And by the way, if this doesn't change, if something doesn't happen, one day we're shown we might get so lost, we never find our way out. Abraham says this to the rich man. He says, and besides all of this, kind sir, between us and you, a great chasm is set in place. To those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. You'll, you'll notice the bitter irony here. Lazarus in life couldn't get into the rich man's gate, but now in death, the rich man can't get out. His gates in life have trapped him in death. His good thing, living apart from God, became a living hell. At some point we're shown, the gate is fixed. The way is shut. At some point it's, so, it's possible to go so deep inside yourself to only focus on your own wants, needs, pain, hurt, etc., that you can't get out. And as if that weren't bad enough, there's one final marker of utter lostness to self. The man said, Then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my family. I got five brothers. Let him warn them. This sounds nice, by the way. He's still ordering Lazarus around. He hadn't changed. So that they won't also come to this place. And Abraham will look at it in a second. He basically says back to him, sorry, bro. You don't get a second chance with loved ones. What you did, you did in that life. What you didn't do, you didn't do. It's too late to change any of it. Abraham's showing us, Jesus is actually through Abraham, our lostness to ourselves affects the ones we care about the most. Let me give you an example. Years ago, I once coached a 12-year-old sports team, and they came back to win the championship. Yay. 
last second. Oh, yes. After they were down the whole game in the, in the last game, the opposing team had this player who consistently was a jerk, tried to in, injure our players, literally cursed our players, 12 years old, cheated as often as he could. And when we came back and we won at the last second, of course, we were overjoyed. And afterward, we did what you know teams do, which is to do the traditional post-game handshake ritual. Only he went through the line, instead of congratulating our guys, insulted literally every player on our team, one by one. And his dad was the coach of the other team, who had, unsurprisingly, also during the game, screamed at our players at key moments to try to cause them to fail. He had taunted our parents by doing obscene hip thrusts at our stands. Tried to bully the umpire into giving him calls. He was blind to his own behavior. And then he saw, when he saw his son insulting our players, he dragged him out of line by the back of his jersey, yanked him towards the unlit parking lot, and we could all hear him scream at his son as he drug him off. He said, you son of a... Called him a name. He says, I am ashamed to call you my son. Now, where do you think the son learned to behave like he did? See, hell is the place where we lose the ones we love because we've already lost ourselves. I want to tell you, because you're like, this is really bad. I know this is bad. But there is good news. We can escape. We can be found. How? Here it is. It's not by being afraid. If you're feeling afraid today, let it go. Not by feeling guilty. You're feeling guilty, let it go. It's by seeing something else. Here it is. Jesus finishes the parable like this. Abraham replied, they got Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they'll repent. He said to them, if they don't listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead What's that? Jesus is saying here, essentially, someone won't be convinced of the reality of God, the next life, even if someone rises from the dead. You're like, well, hang on. Is it the whole point of the Christian faith that someone rises from the dead? Yes, but Jesus is saying head knowledge of that isn't enough. And it's true. If you're here today, you likely know the compelling evidence of the historical resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Okay. But if you know that, let me ask you. Why is there still a fire burning inside you for some other highest good, huh? See, telling someone the fact that Jesus rose from the dead, they might make you respect him a little more, but it's not necessarily gonna free you from every kind of internal lostness. What will? Jesus said what can free us, find us, is an understanding of what he calls Moses and the prophets. What do Moses and the prophets tell us? Moses, Jewish lawgiver, nation founder, tells us that God, through the law, God told us he really cares about sin, lostness, injustice, and to wipe away all of that, a sacrifice would have to be made. A lamb would have to be broken, go into the fire, take a person's place in the fire. The prophets later told us over and over that even though we, like the nation of Israel in the Old Testament, we are spiritual addicts, there is one who would come and be marred and disfigured beyond recognition for our addiction to invert the image. Who is that? Hmm. Jesus, of course, Isaiah 53, is the summary statement of all that Moses and the prophets taught. And it goes like this. It said, surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried. 
yet we considered him stricken. See, we're so blind, we couldn't even recognize God when he came in our face. Stricken, smitten to God and afflicted, but he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we're healed. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. Jesus went through this for you, not just for a fact, but for you and your all. Why did he do this? Listen, listen, hear me. If things like hell, lostness, eternal judgment, if they're only metaphors, then that means Jesus died to save you from a metaphor? Hmm. If hell isn't real, then Jesus suffered and died to save us from something that's not even real. That means salvation doesn't exist. It can exist because there is nothing to be saved from. And God is a father who is awful and he punished his son for no purpose. What has he saved you from if hell isn't real? Come on. In the end, the doctrine of hell is how much you know you're actually worth to God. See, the irony is those who take away the doctrine of eternal judgment in an attempt to make God more loving, in the end, make him less loving. And once you see that love, that he went into the fire for you and me, if your heart is touched by that today, here's how you break free. Here it is. You just ask God for a new name. What do I mean? Back to the beginning of the parable. One man had a name based on his highest good. It was a rich man. And that name, like every other name, was burned up. But the other man was the only man to be actually named in any of Jesus' parables. His name, of course, was Lazarus. You know what Lazarus means? It means this. He whom God helps. And when you know that's you, you cry that out. Jesus, save me. Let me be the one that you help. Save me from myself. Save me from my blindness towards my own wake before it's too late. Save me from living for my own self. Save me from hurting the ones I love before it's too late. Help me to serve somebody that exists outside my career. Help me to give my money before it gets me. Help me to be honest with someone who can help me. Help me to make a searching and fearless moral inventory of my life. I don't want to lose myself. Help me maybe to book that appointment, have that conversation with a trusted friend, pastor, counselor, Holy Spirit, and talk about that thing I'm hanging on to. God, let me be the one you help. That is a heart's response to the gospel. So who am I today? I hope you would say, I am Lazarus. Lazarus, let me take a moment and pray for us as we begin to close. Lord, I thank you in Jesus' name. You're so faithful. Lord, no matter how dark things have gotten, there's still hope. There's always hope. There's always a breakthrough. There's always an exit ramp from whatever pathway we've been on in this life. There's always hope. Lord, and so I thank you for that, for providing that for us today. I pray in Jesus' name we would respond. Matter of fact, if this is you, just real quick, if this is you, you say, man, I've gotten, I'm just stuck with myself today. I've gotten stuck somehow with myself. Would you do that? Would you raise your hand? I'm already feeling lost to myself. I've gotten stuck. Yeah. Lord, especially for those with their hands raised in, hum in humility. Lord, we just all acknowledge we're Lazarus. Let us be the one that you help. Would you help these take that step towards freedom today? In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.
Thanks for listening. For more info about how to get and stay connected to Mosaic Church, please visit us online at www.mosaicchurchaustin.com or download our app from your app store.